let's start this week with a word of prayer. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to share it, even if it's to a a video camera and a remote audience. Father, I don't know who's paying attention to this anymore. Uh, I'm doing it to be faithful to you more than I am because I think it has any any long, long-term long reach. Uh, but Father, in my effort to be faithful uh, to you, protect me from any kind of pride or sin or, or, or maybe tone or anything that I might, you know, take for granted when I'm opening your word. Because whether there's someone watching or listening or not, this is still your word. You are holy and I am not, and you are our sovereign and I am not. And help me to treat this uh, in light of the fact that this has been delivered to me by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being who loves me and who sent his son to die on the cross for me. Help us not to despise it, but to take it very seriously. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So for anybody watching this, uh, I am not in the church anymore. I figured with uh, attendance returning more to normal on Sundays and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of, uh, at least in our particular area of the country, uh, on decline, that uh, I might be able to get away with uh, just doing this uh, in the comfort of my own home uh, for those who might need to listen remotely instead of going and setting everything up at the church and, and trying to do it all that way. You know, uh, this, this evening I'm going to cover the same text once again uh, that uh, I'm going to be covering on Sunday morning, Lord willing. And it's a really important text. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 through 16, so not a long passage. And this won't be, this won't be a long message, but we're going to read uh, verses 12 through 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, I'll give you a second to turn. And while you turn, uh, I'll just let you know that uh, as we've gone through 1 Timothy so far, it's been really profitable uh, for me. Uh, you know, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor now for uh, nearly eight years. Uh, it's hard to believe. And I've uh, been preaching that entire time, uh, week after week. And, you know, Timothy really brings a great perspective uh, to ministry. And it really brings a, a great perspective uh, to the way a church uh, should be focused and I've benefited uh, tremendously from it. So now, let's take a look at verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's see if we can't uh, get a little bit more out of uh, the Word of God uh, this evening. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Until I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, there we go. Uh, that's 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to work through these verse by verse, make a couple application points as we go, and then we're going to try to land in the most important place that anyone can land. We're going to land on the gospel. Okay, so first of all, I want to, just by way of an introduction, state, while this is in God's Word, and it's a message to all believers everywhere, and there are practical things to draw out of all of this, nevertheless, we have to remember the context of 1 Timothy chapter 4. It is a letter from one person to another. Yes, to be read and delivered to a church, but it is a letter from Paul to Timothy. And, and this, these instructions here in verse 12 are intensely personal. Now, they are applicable 
uh, to pastors everywhere, uh, but not in every single point. For instance, verse 12, let no one despise your youth. That's not something that every single pastor is dealing with, but Timothy specifically was. And as we go through this, it talks about uh, how Timothy went through this experience of having uh, the hands of the eldership laid on him, and there were prophecies foretold about him. Now, not, not every pastor uh, has an experience like that. Uh, even the exhortation to, to uh, continue in these things and, and give yourself entirely to them. Well, not every, every pastor or minister can, can give themselves entirely to, to uh, some of the things on this list all the time. You know, certainly that's not to say they shouldn't be the focus, but Timothy was in a situation of growing and, and maturing in his ministry, and he was in a particularly challenging spot with a particular purpose. Now, maybe more pastors should give themselves entirely to these things, but there's part of this, as we go through the entire passage, that is intensely personal to Timothy. And that's good to know. Uh, nevertheless, I think we can get uh, quite a bit of uh, meat out of every one of these verses. So let's look at verse 12. Verse 12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Now that in spirit there probably wasn't in the original text, and it really doesn't fit if you think about it, because in spirit doesn't go with the other active uh, examples that Timothy was supposed to set. In other words, all the other examples are active. In word, he was supposed to be a good example, the way he spoke. In conduct, the way he acted. In love, the way that he uh, treated other people and was compassionate towards other people. Uh, in faith, that's uh, his ability to endure and to have hope and to trust God. That would be on display in front of the congregation. And then impurity, and certainly we know that one of the reasons why we're supposed to look to our local pastors uh, as the main teaching instruments in our lives is because they're the men who you can see and you can look at their lives and evaluate them. One of the big problems that a lot of Christians have is their main teaching instrument is uh, some, some person on the internet, some person on a video, some person who wrote a book that they'll never meet in person. Now, they may be perfectly fine you know, teacher. They may be of outstanding character, but uh, the person reading and learning from them won't know that because they never get to see their life. They never get to see their conduct. You know, If someone were someday watching this video right now of me giving this sermon, I hope that you can listen with a bit of a discernment and that maybe because this is God's Word, it will help you and be profitable to you. But the main teaching instrument in your life should be the Word of God as proclaimed through qualified teachers and pastors in your local church whose lives you can evaluate whose conduct you can examine. And, and that's what verse 12 is telling Timothy. Uh, listen, be an example in these, in these ways, in the way you talk, in the way you live, in the way you treat other people, you know, in love, uh, in faith, you know, the, the way that, that you persevere and, and continue to trust the Lord, uh, and in purity, and in the, the, just the holiness of your life, the right conduct of your life. So uh, these are the ways Timothy is supposed to be an example. But, of course, we start verse 12 with this simple phrase, let no one despise your youth. Now I'll say this, in the ancient Roman world, once you factored out infant mortality, uh, the average man lived to be about 50 years old. So that's quite a bit different from the average man in our day and age. Uh, I don't know what the exact life expectancy is uh, for a, a man in the United States of America right now in 2020. I guess I could have looked it up, but I would imagine it's over 70. Uh, it might be approaching 80. It might be around 80. That's a big gap from 50 when people were dying uh, the median uh, age of death uh, in the Roman world once you factored out infant mortality. So what did youth look like uh, for, for Timothy in Paul's day and age? I don't know. I mean, I would guess 20s. 
but now, you know, I'm 37 years old at the time of recording this video, and I think there's a lot of people who would still look at me and say, oh, well, you're a young man in the ministry. You know, you, you haven't seen very much, and you haven't done very much, you know, and, and here I am. If I'd lived in ancient Rome, I'm, I'm 13 years away from the average death year. So, you know, yeah, being youthful is a relative thing, but that doesn't make this any less applicable, right? Because the, the, the point is, pastors who are qualified, which we've already dealt with in 1 Timothy, the qualifications to be a pastor, Pastors who are qualified and who are doing a good job and appointed to a position should not let criticism about their youth uh, hinder their ministry. Uh, and, and we'll talk about what that means in a second, but, but just think about that, that, that criticisms of someone's youth uh, might be so prevalent. Uh, you know, I, I think most criticisms uh, when it comes to someone's youth is their lack of experience, right? When, when you criticize someone uh, as a teacher or as an instructor, uh, generally the criticism is, well, they haven't gone through everything that, you know, someone who is older would have gone through. So therefore, they're not as, as profitable uh, to me. So criticisms of youth are criticisms of experience. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone despise your youth. Now, what does he mean about that? Don't let anyone despise your youth. I mean, practically speaking, what could Timothy do if someone decided to despise you know, his youth. I mean, you ever think about that? It, it would be like if a, if a very uh, unpopular football coach in, a, in a, 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 a local area suddenly got the head coaching job and everyone just despised him, right? What good would it be to look at that guy and say, hey, don't let anybody despise you? What does that mean? It's, is he going to go around and somehow prohibit people from despising him? So what is Paul telling Timothy here? Well, in that context, the way that someone doesn't let other people despise them is they carry on with perseverance, doing what they know is right and doing what they're called to do, despite the fact that there are going to be people who are going to, you know, think very little of their of their ministry or, you know, in the coaching scenario of, of their program, maybe. You know, it's it's not the idea that, Timothy, go around and prove yourself to everybody. That's not what he says. It's not the idea is, Timothy, go around and correct and argue with everyone who thinks that you're too young to be doing this job. That's not what he says either. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but, but, and here's the key, here's how you don't let anyone despise your youth in ministry, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and faith and purity. In other words, if you will dedicate yourself to being the example and being the pastor that you are called to be, that's how a good, godly pastor doesn't let anyone despise uh, his youth. But on the, on the flip side, if someone comes around and accuses you of being too young and not qualified, and you shrink away from that and say, oh, well, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't uh, be a pastor you know, to this person. Maybe I shouldn't confront this issue. Maybe I shouldn't address this portion of the scriptures. Maybe I shouldn't deal with this sin because I'm too young. Well, if you do that, then you are letting people despise, neglect, refrain your, your ministry. And Paul says, don't do that. Instead, while there may be people who, you know, don't think very highly of you because of your age, continue on anyway and be an example. And by just continuing on and being an example, you may not win anyone over, but you're not letting anyone despise you. You're not letting anyone cripple you. 
you're not you're not letting yourself be be prohibited from doing what God's called you to do because of the way people feel about your age. Now, look, there are reasons to despise a pastor. Okay, a pastor, for instance, who's in an overt and unrepentant sin. That's not someone who should be heeded and listened to. <laughs> you know, there are good reasons to despise a pastor who has disqualified himself, and it seems to be apparent uh, to, to everybody who sh who should be paying attention. But youth alone. That's not one of the reasons. And that's what Paul's trying to encourage Timothy. So if, if Timothy stopped doing his job and stopped being an example simply because somebody didn't approve of his job or value his example, then he was letting them despise him. And, and Paul says, don't do that. You know, Christian ministry of all sorts, this, this doesn't just pertain to pastoral ministry. This pertains to men's ministry, women's ministry, youth ministry, uh, song ministry. Any place where people are serving sacrificially and putting themselves out there to, to, to help and assist the body of Christ. Ministry is hard, and it can be very discouraging, because sometimes you do the very best job you can, and no one cares, or at least no one seems to care. Maybe it's just a relatively small number of people who are truly you know, despising of what you do, but sometimes that small group of people can feel like you know, a massive mob. You know, I think we see that in all areas of our culture. Sometimes it's, it's a very vocal minority, uh, that, it, that can be the most painful and the most discouraging. And Paul says, look, Timothy, no one said this was going to be easy. Keep on being an example in these things and the way you conduct yourself. Verse 13, he says, Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and to doctrine. Now just think about those three things. This is what a pastor is supposed to give their attention to. Are you ready? To reading. Now I'm pretty sure when Paul told Timothy to give his attention to reading, I don't think he was talking about the ancient Greek uh, uh, epics. I don't think that's what Paul meant because, you know, they were certainly around at the time. But I don't think Paul, Paul was telling Timothy, hey, pick up your, your copy of uh, Odysseus. Uh, pick up your, your, you know, I don't think that's what Paul meant. I don't think, no. I, I think what Paul says, pay, pay attention, give yourself to reading. I think he's talking about just one thing. And we can say the Bible generically, and that's true. But he's talking specifically about the Old Testament. The Old Testament that reveals the character of God, His plan of salvation, the illustration of Israel, uh, the importance of, 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 the, of the sovereignty of God and the humility of man. You know, but give yourself, Timothy, to reading. Now, certainly we have, you know, the New Testament here, and we should give ourselves to reading both the Old and the New Testament. I think there's a lot of Christians who neglect the Old Testament. And if they ever read it, it's just so that they can recount some story. But the Old Testament is rich all through the minor prophets and the major prophets. And then there's a lot of people who get caught up and they don't read the Psalms, you know, because it's too, it's too uh, poetic. It's, it, it's not, you know, it's not a, a story, so they don't read it. And they just miss out on the wisdom of God. And they miss out. You know, they, they don't learn how to pray like they should because they don't read the Psalms, you know. They just read the, the, the example that Jesus gives in the Lord's Prayer, and, and they don't have the rich context, you know, the Old Testament. Guess what? God inspired the Old Testament, too. You know, and they don't understand the wisdom of God in practical ways, like how to raise their family, how to manage their money, how to, when it's all right there in the Proverbs. And, and they don't understand how to, uh, how to relate to the world around them with the right perspective because they don't know anything about Ecclesiastes. And, and they, they know a bunch of stories about the Bible from Sunday school and vacation Bible school when they were little kids, but they can't line them up in any kind of cohesive order so that they, they, they can't see the plan of God unfolding 
all the way back from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham and, and the patriarchs all the way into Moses and Joshua and then the, 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 the kings and then the prophets. And they, they, they can't line it all up. It's just a collection of jumbled stories in their minds, you know, cartoonish images of heroes and, and enemies. And, you know, Paul tells Timothy, don't let your, your, your relationship with God default to that kind of simpleton level. Give yourself to reading. And by the way, I have a wonderful devotion here on my desk here. One of these uh, Table Talk magazines. Now here I am. I'm a Baptist pastor and I'm advocating a, a Presbyterian devotion. But you know, I love Legionnaire Ministries and Table Talk and I get a lot out of these things. But you know what? I get more out of reading my Bible. And the value of a devotion like this is that it's so, uh, it's so critical in its nature of thinking that it drives me to look back at the text again. And this is what we should be reading. So Paul says, give yourself to reading. He says, give yourself to exhortation. You know the difference between a lecture and, uh, and a sermon? You know, a lecture is just information. It may be good information. It may be profitable information. It may be stuff you've never heard before or things you've heard a thousand times. But a sermon exhorts. A sermon applies it personally. You know, a lecture explains what the word uh, reading means in the text and the historical understanding of what reading means in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I've done some of that, right? But an exhortation is when I look at you and I say, Christian, you need to give yourself to reading. How are you doing giving yourself to read? That's exhortation. There's a call there. Sometimes the call is encouraging, right? Sometimes I can call uh, the people that I'm preaching to to joy because that's what the passage does. You know, it's calling them to joy and to trust God and to have faith and to count on Him. And, and sometimes the call is very challenging. Sometimes it's about sin. Sometimes it's very personal, right? Because the Bible is, a, is, a, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even uh, to the division of the soul. You know, the Bible, it cuts us deep sometimes. You know, so that's what Timothy was supposed to do, reading and then exhortation. He was supposed to apply in a personal way the Word of God. You know, some people don't like it when you apply the Word of, the word of God very personally. <laughs> they don't like it at all. <laughs> you know, they're with you in the sermon until you say something that's a little bit uncomfortable and then you kind of see them, you know, shake their heads or look up or roll their eyes. You know, they don't like it. Right? But that, that's what a pastor's supposed to do. Right? If a pastor's not going to do it with the Word of God, who is Right? So Timothy is supposed to give himself to exhortation. Also says to doctrine. You know, it's great when you have someone who's really gifted to teach. But if they don't know what they're supposed to be teaching, then they're not going to be very much help to anybody. You know, Timothy was supposed to give himself not simply to instructing, but to understanding the instructions he was to be giving. Right? He's supposed to understand the Word of God. You know, be able to put it together. And so, you know, to put these three things here. And this is what Paul says Timothy to, to give his attention to. And you know what's not on that list? A lot of things that a lot of churches demand from pastors today. You know, here's what Timothy's supposed to give himself to, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Paul doesn't say give, give attention to your business pedigree. You know, give attention to your organizational know-how. Make sure that you're a captivating public speaker. Of course Paul wouldn't say that. He was accused himself on multiple occasions of not being a very great public speaker, not being able to compete with the great Greek orators, the great philosophical speakers of his day. Yeah, but Paul doesn't say that to Timothy. He doesn't say, Timothy, make sure that you have a great rapport with children. Make sure that you get along great with the teenagers so that all the parents of the church go home and say, oh, we have a great pastor. All the kids love him, right? 
That's what, that's what it takes to be a good pastor in the eyes of many, many people. The kids love him, right? It should be the pastor loves the kids, but the kids may not always love the pastor. <laughs> not if he's teaching the Word of God. Not if he's trying to hold them to a challenging standard. No, it doesn't say that, you know. It doesn't say, Timothy, give yourself to these things and make sure that you have a great sense of humor and you're a good, a good storyteller or else, you know, the people, they, they won't listen as closely as they should. Yeah. Paul doesn't say anything like that. Uh, Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with a laying on of the hands of the eldership. Now, I think it's fairly common, I know it is in, uh, in uh, Baptist churches, that when someone is ordained or set aside for uh, pastoral ministry, that they go through some sort of ordination service. And that usually includes the eldership or the pastors of the church where they're being ordained, where their ordination service is happening. And even now, sometimes there is a laying on of hands and the men will, will pray and the, the other pastors uh, who are praying over the, the man or the men who are going to be ordained will, will just put their hands on the person and pray. But I don't believe anything magical is happening when there's a laying on of hands in that way. I don't believe that there's, there's any kind of supernatural experience taking place in any noticeable way I, through the physical contact. You know, whatever supernatural is happening is happening at the will of God, by the work of the Spirit of God, not the work of a pastor and his hands. But there is something important, something symbolic in the idea of, of pastors and elders putting their hands on, on a new pastor, a new elder, on the shoulder, or on the back, and praying for them, and, and, and praying for God's blessing on them. Not that, not that they can confer a blessing, but that God would confer a blessing on them. Timothy had had a unique experience, though. It's very possible in the time period that Timothy and Paul lived that, uh, that Timothy did have uh, some supernatural experience at the hands of Paul would be the first person who had something supernaturally happen at the hands of Paul. I can tell you this, nobody's ever had anything supernaturally happen at the hands of Reggie. <laughs> I'm not, that's not me. You know, whatever supernaturally has happened uh, that I had anything to do with happened by the Spirit of God, not the, not the hands of Reggie. And whatever power Paul possessed to put his hands on somebody and have something supernatural happen, it came from the Spirit of God too. Now, he may have had some special authority and gift that I don't have uh, to, to be able to, to uh, you know, kind of of his own volition bestow it. Uh, I don't have that. You know, I, I pray and I ask God to do it. Uh, but either way, it came from God, by the work of God. So, you know, it's a, it mentions prophecies and the laying on of hands here concerning Timothy. Like I said in my introduction, this is specific to Timothy. You know, I... Uh, no one's ever made any prophecies about me. Thank goodness, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to handle that. Uh, but Timothy had had this experience, and so Paul, by way of encouragement, reminds him of it. And I'll tell you this, it's a good thing to remember how things started in your Christian ministry. Because like I said, sometimes things can get very discouraging. It's a good thing to remember how they started. Um, anyway, uh, verse 15, uh, uh, Paul continues on, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be, may be evident to all. And I think that's what's important, especially for, for a young pastor like Timothy. The, the very best pastor uh, is, 
still at one point in his ministry a new pastor. And just like every other uh, ministry in the church, it's a good thing when people see progress. Progress. What does that look like? Ah, progress when it comes to handling God's Word. A little bit more skill. A little bit more wisdom. Yeah, anybody can stand up in the pulpit and thunder down and fire and brimstone and work themselves up into a frenzy. But you know, not every sermon calls for that. <laughs> anybody can, can preach on, on the two or three uh, doctrines or teachings from Scripture that they have a really solid grasp on. But you know, as you go through ministry, you need to be able to, to cover the entirety of God's Word. You know, progress. Progress in conduct, you know. Uh, pastors are Christians who are growing too. Now, now, certainly the conduct has to meet the level of qualification at the beginning of their ministry. But when you get towards the end of their ministry, you would certainly hope that their conduct is well above the mere qualification level that it began at. You're looking for progress. You know, let me ask you this. You're supposed to be a servant of God. Is there progress in your Christian ministry? Or is there regression? <laughs> you know, progress is moving forward, advancing. Regression is falling backwards. You know, the interesting thing about that sometimes, by outward appearances, we might be able to convince ourselves that we are progressing. Maybe we started off just watching some children in the back, and now we're teaching a Sunday school class. And you say, progress. Is it progress, though? Are you teaching that Sunday school class to the very best of your ability? Are you growing in your ability to teach that Sunday school class? Is your progress evident? It should be. It should be. I hope it is. Uh, so that's what Paul tells Timothy. Look, Timothy, you can focus on everybody else if you want, and you can get discouraged, but I think you need to give yourself entirely to these important things in ministry, to, to, to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, making sure your conduct is an example. If you give yourselves to these things, then eventually your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. There it is again. Take heed. Watch out for yourself and your teaching. Why should we watch out for our teaching? For all the reasons that we've already looked at in chapter 4. Teaching is the point at which people walk away from the Lord. When we believe wrong teaching, when we believe wrong teaching, then we live the wrong way. And so he says, keep watch over yourself, take heed to yourself and your teaching. Anybody who thinks that they're keeping good watch out for themselves, that they're keeping good spiritual eye on themselves, who is not also very carefully checking the teaching that they're buying into, they're not keeping watch over themselves. They're not. Being a Christian, friends, is about more than simply making good decisions. You know, that's what we tell teenagers. You make sure you make good decisions. No, no. Being a Christian is about being spiritually alive and being able to discern what is it that I'm buying into? Is this right? Is this good? That's what Paul tells Timothy. Take heed to yourself in the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know, there's a, a certain aspect to Christian ministry that that might make us uncomfortable, that idea of if you continue in them, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. Because we believe in the doctrine of eternal security. And that is, when the Holy Spirit, you know, causes regeneration in our lives to where we become what, what, what's often referred to, you know, this is John chapter 3, born again. No, we know, we believe once you experience that, once you're saved, you're always saved, right? 
But then all the warnings in the scriptures, you know, like the parable of the sower, which we talked about last week, all the warnings are that we can be self-deceived about whether or not we have truly been born again. Sometimes we may even look for a time like we have been born again, only to find out that, uh, or more precisely for others to find out, that our experience was not genuine. We should keep an eye on ourselves. You know, God knows every person who is truly saved. He knows the moment that it takes place. He knew before they were born. Ephesians chapter 1 says, He knows from before the foundations of the earth who He would adopt into His family eternally. So God could look at everyone in our congregation and instantly tell who was truly a Christian and who wasn't. But I can't do that. I don't have a, a scanner or an x-ray gun to shoot at everybody's soul and say, oh, yep, that person's truly a Christian. Yeah, beep, beep, beep. Oh, no, there's, this person's not. I don't have one of those things. We're fruit inspectors. That's what Christians are. We look at, at what God is producing in a person's life, whether they're living in a way that honors God, glorifies God, or whether or not they're leaving in a, living in a sinful way. You know, we inspect the fruit, and by that we judge whether or not they seem to be a, a Christian in good standing in the church or someone who needs to experience church discipline because they've fallen away into sin and rebellion against God. That's what we do. You know, I believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. But I don't believe in the idea that I can tell you everybody in the church who's definitely saved. You know, you know, I, I heard John Piper uh, preach one time and he made it clear that he prays even in his own life. This is John Piper, one of the most influential pastors in my lifetime in the world. Uh, and he prays, you know, routinely, God, keep me, right? Because a person can be self-deceived. They can think that they're saved and convince themselves that they're saved and not be saved. So this idea of perseverance in the faith is important, specifically for a pastor, because he's preaching, and that's why Paul says, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 warns us, John talks about those who've walked away from the faith. And he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they had truly been saved, then they would have continued with us. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. Continue in these things. You know? So we need to be on guard against that and make sure we persevere and watch over your soul. Pastors are watching over your soul. They should be. Watch over your soul. Make sure that you're continuing in, 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 in good Christian conduct, that you're continuing in good Christian doctrine, teaching. Okay. Now, uh, this is where I want to kind of wrap up and, and, uh, and summarize things here. Why is Paul telling Timothy, let no one despise your youth? I mean, after all, there is something very legitimate in the idea that someone who is young and inexperienced might not be the most reliable source of help, right? That's legitimate. I mean, if you have to go in for, for uh, open heart surgery, do you want the surgeon who's performing surgery for the first time? Or do you want the surgeon who's performed thousands and thousands of these and has never lost a patient? Which one would you prefer? I think we'd all prefer the latter, right? Because we understand the value of experience. But, but here's the difference when it comes to pastoral ministry and really when it comes to all spiritual ministry. Here's the difference. When it comes to the church and the people serving in the church, we are not called to trust 
in the wisdom or the power of those people. We're called to trust in the wisdom and the power of God working in those people. In other words, when I stand up and I deliver a sermon, or when I do what I'm doing right now, and I'm, I'm you know, just delivering a message, just teaching, even to a, a camera in my, in my little office here, okay, when I do this, I'm not asking you to trust me, and I'm not asking you to trust my insight and my wisdom. I'm just a man. I'm doing this with the Word of God open in front of me. You see the words on these pages here. I didn't write these words. I mean, I wrote those little blue words. I didn't write all these. The blue words, you know, you can listen to, to my applications, but the ones that are printed there are the ones that you need to pay attention to. So when Paul's saying, Timothy, let no one despise your youth, he's assuming that Timothy is doing what he's supposed to do, which is preach the Word of God. The Word of God should not be despised when it comes from a qualified pastor, no matter how young he is. You know, there is a great foolishness in thinking that the only person who can help us in our spiritual lives when we're struggling or when we're going through something difficult is the person who has experienced what we've experienced. That's folly. That's foolishness. First of all, let's say that you're going through a difficult time and you found out you have cancer. Can you only be, help, be helped by a pastor or a Christian who themselves have had cancer or some terminal illness? If you say that, how do you even know the person who's had cancer or who's had the terminal illness before? How do you even know that their experience was, was uh, inspired by God in the way that it was? How do you know they came through that experience well enough and with the right perspective to even offer you something helpful? They may have all kinds of advice and it may be terrible, right? But what do you want when you find out you have cancer? What do you want? Do you want the wisdom of the most experienced man? Or do you want the wisdom of God? Because the most experienced man may be able to help you with some practical advice, I guess. But what does the wisdom of God tell you? To cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. That all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the, the judgment. But that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That you can have eternal life with God because He sent His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That, that, that uh, one day in eternity is like a thousand years on the earth. That the moment that you close your eyes on this earth, you'll be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the return of the Lord Jesus and have a new resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15. But what do you want? The wisdom of man who's experienced what you've gone through before or the power of the Almighty God? Because a pastor and a Christian brother and sister are supposed to come to you with the power of the Word of the Almighty God. And they're supposed to pray in the Spirit of the Almighty God that doesn't have any prerequisite experience required to bow and call upon the most sovereign, powerful being in all the universe because He created the universe and He created you. And He's sovereign over cancer and He's sovereign over death. You know, what do we want when we're in trouble? What kind of advice do we want? It really boils down to this. Are we going to be the kind of people who put our, our confidence and our trust in man and the experience of man? and the age of man, 
and the wisdom of man? Or is our confidence going to be in the power of God? Because if your confidence is in the power of God, then you'll listen to a donkey who stops you in the middle of the road when he starts speaking to you in the power of God. If your confidence is in the power of God, then you'll listen to a teenage boy named Daniel. You know, if your confidence is in the power of God, then you'll listen to a teenage boy named David. If your confidence is in the wisdom of man, you're going to get listen to a lot of false teachers and false prophets. But who are we really supposed to be trusting here? So, Timothy, and so you. Let no one despise your youth if you're giving yourself to reading and exhortation and good sound doctrine. You can be practically helpful to people if you've met those qualifications. Finally, I'll say this, you know, when we talk about whether or not we're going to trust God or trust man, I think every person who would ever watch a message needs to ask themselves, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? Or am I not a Christian? Have I trusted God with my life? Or do I trust in my own wisdom to navigate life and, by extension, navigate the reality of what will happen when I die? God's appointed unto man once to die, and after that a judgment, which is ominous, because the judgment of God is not temporary but eternal. You know, heaven is, is a place of eternal life, and hell is a place of eternal condemnation, and rightly so because a creation of God that embraces their corruption and rebels against Him and dishonors Him and spends a life of sin against Him deserves condemnation. They don't deserve the blessing, the ongoing eternal blessing of a Creator who made them for something more. Now, if you're listening to this, I want you to know God's made you for something more. What is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of man? Man is a creature. The purpose of a creature is to glorify its creator. The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Who are you going to trust with your life? Are you going to trust yourself? The wisdom of man? Where does that get you when you die and you stand before an almighty God, a creator? It seems to me that our lives are better off in the hands of the creator, trusting Him. He's made it very clear what you must do. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, to this world to die on a cross to pay for your sin. How does that happen? Well, Jesus lived a sinless life. So when He offers His life to God, He's uniquely qualified to die on the cross and to cover your debt of sin. If I were to offer my life and to try to pay for somebody else's, I couldn't do it because I'm a sinner. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. When I die, however it is, hit by a car, heart attack, an anvil falls on my head like Wiley Coyote, although he never seems to die, does he? But when I die, you know, I'm just getting what I deserve. I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I don't deserve eternal life. I've, I'm, I'm corrupt. And I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. Even though I try as best I can, I still sin all the time. It's to my shame. To my shame. Right? So I can't offer my life to pay for anyone else's. But Jesus, He wasn't a sinner. He lived a perfect life. He was righteous because He was the Son of God. You know? The very Son of God, born of a virgin, the God-man. Not half God, half man. Fully God in man. God in the flesh. And He lived a sinless life. And so when He offers His life to pay for sinners, when He offers His life in a sinner's place, He's not getting what He deserves in death. Instead, He's taking what I deserve in His death. And God looks to that one perfect, 
sinless sacrifice and on his shoulders places the sin of us all. That's Isaiah 53, right? By his stripes we're healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. But you know, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave because, again, he didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve eternal death. He was sinless. He legally paid for my sin and death. But death could not hold him. There is no condemnation for him. And now there is no condemnation for all who believe on him. He rose to eternal life and he'll one day return to this earth. And when he does, that's when 1 Corinthians 15 kicks in. All those who believe on him will be changed in a moment. Glorified bodies. Not this one. Not the balding, chubby, you know, although <laughs> it would be funny if uh, the, my glorified body ended up looking anything like this. I'd still be happy. I'd be, you know, in heaven eternally with my creator. It could be worse, right? But it'll be, it'll be perfect because it'll be uncorrupted. The, the, a creation of God uncorrupted. All my life I've lived in corruption. All my life I, I've lived in broken flesh. All my life. You know, I've been told that I have cancer. I've watched my hair fall out. I've sunburned and watched age spots kick in. I've broken bones and spent months in traction. I've had to relearn how to walk again. All my life I've lived in physical corruption. And all my life I've lived in spiritual corruption. Though I know that I should not do something, I find myself doing it anyway. I experience guilt. I experience shame. I hurt people who love me. I hurt people I love. And I've certainly hurt people that I didn't even think about, that I didn't even care about. I've lived all my life in physical and spiritual corruption. But one day, because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, what is corrupt will be raised and transformed in the blink of an eye to the incorruptible forever. Why? Because Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Look, I don't know where you're at in your life, but I think you should trust Jesus Christ with what's coming. Godliness, we just read this in chapter 4, earlier in the chapter last week. Godliness is profitable in all things, both now in this corruptible life and in the age to come. Aren't you ready to live a life that glorifies God? Aren't you sick of the life that you've lived trying to glorify yourself? Doesn't it get old? Don't you find everything in life eventually unfulfilling and unsatisfying? Even the things that you might take the most joy in, like your marriage or your children, doesn't even death eventually rip them from you? Is there anything in this world that can offer eternal fulfillment? There's not. You need something higher than this world. You need something that only operates in this world by the Spirit of God. And the only way to get the Spirit of God is to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. He will cause the change in your life if you'll trust Him. He will. So I'm going to pray for you now, and I hope that you'll pray with me. And I hope that you'll reach out to me if you ever want to discuss these things. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray for ministers and servants all over the world who are called to trust you and find it very difficult to do so. I, I understand. It is. It's discouraging. It's hard. And I pray, Father, that you'll give them the right frame of mind that so long as they cling to right doctrine found in your word and continue to exhort 
and lead an example of good conduct. I pray, Father, that, that you will assure them that you are with them and that you will bless them in their efforts. Maybe not materially and maybe not in the appraisals of men, but you will bless them nonetheless eternally for a job well done when we meet you face to face. Father, I pray now for anyone who might be listening to this uh, who is not a believer, who has not trusted your Son, Jesus Christ, as the only way of salvation from sin. I pray, Father, that they will get off the, the, the message of the world and wean themselves from the, the, the futility of infants' milk that the world delivers as it purports way after way after way of satisfying self and leading fulfilling lives. It's all junk. It's all dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Father, help them to see the wisdom that your son Jesus preached, that they store up for themselves treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal, where moths and rust can't corrupt, that they will see this world with the proper perspective as the work of a creator corrupted by sin and suffering under the consequences of evil, that they'll look towards a new home, an eternal home, where they'll be with you forever. Father, help us to, to be good messengers of these things and good examples of them. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.